passion is what makes people break through to the next level. It's the key to your breakthrough. In Ecclesiastes 9 and 7, we have been using this text that I love so much from Ecclesiastes. I've gotten so many comments on this verse from the message, seize life. And once again, I remind you that life doesn't come camp out on your doorstep. It's not going to follow you. It's not like the FBI. It's not going to hunt you down. Life is just not going to do that. You better grab it while you can because it's marching by and you can miss your opportunity if you aren't careful. Amen. That's why they say things like carpe diem, seize the day. You've got to grab your chance while you can. And in Hebrews, I've pointed out that all of us have a ceiling. Even with passion, we have a ceiling. Depending upon what your connections are, that your family, your education, your resources, who you know, what you know, what opportunities come your way. Ecclesiastes said time and chance happens to them all. Bottom line is, sooner or later you max out. If you really do everything you can, you will max out and you will encounter a ceiling. Does that mean then that that's as far as you go with your life? It shouldn't. For the believer, what it should mean is that when we came to be a part of the body of Christ, we tapped into his resources. Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. You shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Question is, how do we activate that? Because to listen to some people, you would think that it automatically happens just because you're converted. And yet, experiential reality, born out and the observation of our own lives, much less the lives of others, indicates and reveals that it's not just going to happen. You've got to make it happen. As I've often said, what you don't know, you don't know that you don't know. It's not truth that sets you free. It's a truth you know that sets you free. Try it. And if you don't know about the empowerment available to you in the Holy Spirit, to be sure, there are positive changes that will occur in your life, but you will never max out, never full, fully grasp the dimension you could have had access to unless somebody helps you be aware that it exists. And so we've talked about the high priest that we can touch, that is moved with the feelings of our infirmities, that we can cause to be involved in our lives, and extraordinary actions on our part will move him to act extraordinarily. And we've talked about that. Now we're talking about how Nehemiah got God to be involved in his life by providing extraordinary leadership. Though he was not a leader, had never been to a leadership school, had a lowly position working as the wine taster for a king, And that didn't mean he was skilled in being able to tell what kind of wine was from where, or that had walnut overtones or, you know, oak overtones or any of that. It simply meant that if it had poison in it, he drank it and fell over dead so the king's life would be spared. This guy, with no leadership ability, becomes one of the greatest leaders of the Bible, goes to a place Jerusalem that has been ransacked, destroyed, the city absolutely knocked down, laid waste to the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Most of the people killed, those that were of any intellectual or educational ability, killed on the spot. 
their children taken away captive into Babylon to serve the whims of the Babylonian king. The only ones remaining were the poor, the undertrodden, those that were had nothing really to contribute to society. They would not be a threat. That's who Nehemiah went back to and exercised leadership ability with and rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, paved the way for the reconstruction of the temple and the return of the Jewish people to their homeland. Extraordinary leadership ability. And we've been looking at some of the principles he employed. Today in Matthew 25, verse 37 through 40, I want to read an extraordinary scripture. Then the righteous will answer him. That is God. You get that? The righteous will answer God saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. You see that? Do you get that? The righteous, the righteous will do these things. Now, being righteous is not something that is created by the works that you do, but when you are righteous, it will affect your works. Righteousness can't change your, I mean, Works can't change your heart. But once your heart is changed by God, it makes you want to help somebody. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray you will speak a word to us today that will enlighten, transform, challenge, contradict, confront us, that will not allow us to be the same and comfortable and remain where we are, but will pull us up a little higher and help us to more fully complete our calling in this world and therefore fulfill our destiny and our mandate as believers. We ask in Jesus' name, and everybody shouted, Amen. Amen. Last week I spoke on the leadership principle that Nehemiah elevated the lives of his people. Long before Jesus ever said in John 10 and 10, the thief comes not except to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. Nehemiah realized that a part of his leadership mandate was to help people live that abundant life. I read you the verses last week where the people were not only downtrodden, they were in debt, they were in misery, and they were taxed to the max, absolutely. They were paying a tax, tribute tax, to the king of Babylon. They were already poor, and then they were being preyed upon by people within their own community. Their lands were being taken from them, even their children, and Nehemiah decided to do something about it. Some of the most meaningful verses in the Bible to me are found in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 4 through 6. They describe the plight of the condition of Israel when God found them. They describe more as it were, thoroughly, if you want to expound upon how it affects every human being, they actually describe the plight of the human race. These verses more personally describe my condition before God found me and yours as well. Further, they tell us what he did when he saved us. I'd like to read those verses. These have been an inspiration to me ever since I was saved. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut. 
nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field. When you yourself were loathed on the day you were born, and when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. Wow. God didn't just walk by and ignore us in our lost condition. He had compassion and stopped and spoke one word, live. And he said it again, live. And he still says it to this day, live, live, live. That's the word that God is speaking to every person here, live. And because God says it, I want you to know you can say it too. You can say to your marriage, live. You can say to your finances, Live. When you're watching your life wither away to nothing and your health has been affected and doctors have given you a bad report, you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, because God is saying it, live. I shall live and not die and declare the works of the Lord. You can say it to your business, to your ministry, live. Because there's nothing more powerful than when the human voice is joined together in faith to declare what God is already speaking. Amen. Now, this is important to me because God didn't just save Israel when he found them. It goes on to describe in these passages that they became beautiful. They became blessed. They became prosperous. They became elevated. I personally believe that it's that latter part of this that we as Christians fail to understand that is a part of our mandate. I think we've surrendered to others. We have been tricked into giving up to others what only we, the body of Christ, are actually empowered to do. Mm -hmm. For example, we have long given over to governments the right to fix the problems of the world we live in. We've given to governments, whether that's Democratic or Republican. I'm not pulling anybody's chain here today. Not criticizing anybody's candidate. Simple truth of the matter is we have somehow decided that governments are going to be able to fix the problems of the world and someday bring us into a utopia. Why we would continue to believe that after all the disappointments we've already walked through, I don't know. But so help me, there are people in this room that still believe the government's going to fix it someday. I mean, with ISIS, did you hear the king of Saudi Arabia make the declaration yesterday that within the next 30 to 60 days, ISIS will be in Europe and in the United States of America? We live in a crazy world right now. Oh, I wish somebody would be honest with me and say amen. And we gave up our mandate. We're the salt of the earth, not governments. We're the light of the world, not governments. We're the yeast that's supposed to change the dough, not governments. We ought to be changing them. Hello, somebody. But somewhere along the way, we were sold a bill of goods that if we would just put our faith in our father who art in Washington, D.C., hallowed be his Democratic or Republican name, he's going to fix everything and make us lie down in green pastures and lead us beside still waters. 
Well, from where I stand, they don't look so green and they don't look so steel either. Amen. It's a crazy world we live in. And I, I'll be honest, I've tried to understand. I think they're trying. I'm not even criticizing their effort. I think they're trying. I just think they're in over their head. I don't think they know what to do. Amen. It seems that every program they come up with is just another band-aid. Not fixing anything. It doesn't really get better. And to be honest, some of the decisions they make, I wonder, were they smoking drugs or something whenever they... Can, can I be real? Uh, preach, Richard Hurd. I'm going to. I'm going to preach today. They remind me of Boudreaux's driving. Boudreaux and Thibodeau were driving around town one night and coming up to a red light. Boudreaux just drove right through it, didn't even slow down. And Thibodeau panicked and said, Boudreaux, you done run that red light, man. Be careful. And Boudreaux tells him, don't worry about it. Bear do it all the time and nothing ever happened to him. And a few minutes later, another red light and Boudreaux ran it too. And Thibodeau screamed at him and said, Boudreaux, you keep running them red light. We're going to get killed, man. And Boudreaux assured him, Shad done told you, Bear done it all the time, but no problem. Don't worry. And they came to the next intersection and there was a green light and Boudreaux slammed on his brakes and came to a dead stop. Look both directions and Thibodeau asking, why you didn't go on and stop at the green light for? And Boudreaux cautiously looking both ways says, Shy, if I got the green light, I got to be careful because Abair might be passing the other way. <laughs> I'm wondering where their driving is leading us. Some of the logic they're using, I do not understand. Nehemiah realized that to be a great leader, you must do more than just save those you lead. You must empower them. So he built up the walls around Jerusalem and saved the people. They were living in a time of great insecurity. The threat and the danger was very real. They could be attacked. Their throats slit in the night. But now the wall has almost been completed. He saved them. Just like God spoke to Israel and said, live, he saved them. And the Jewish people, listen, he didn't stop with just saving them. The Jewish people, God continued to speak live over their lives to such an effect and impact that to this day, they're one of the most prosperous people in all of the world. Two and a half percent of the world's population and his estimated Jewish people control almost 50% of the resources of this world. Tell me that's not blessed. Oh, somebody in the building needs to say amen. Nehemiah raised up the wall. He saved the people, and then he decided, I don't just need to save them. I need to say live. They need to have abundant life. I can't leave them where I found them. And this brings us to what I'm talking about. Churches are the ones that are tasked with this responsibility, not governments. Churches can do this. Governments can't. And unfortunately, we gave away our mandate thinking governments could. And there's a fundamental reason when you stop and think about it, you'll actually realize that it's a very logical deduction that governments will never be able to fix these kind of things. And that is because they operate with political authority. You understand what I'm talking about? There are different kinds of authority. There's political authority. You hear what I'm saying? But they do not have spiritual authority. And the problems we're facing in our world are not political. They are spiritual. The greed, the crime, the problems, the lack, the moral decay 
one treating another unfairly, you know, you know, making their, their buck on somebody else's misery and pain. You can't legislate fixes to problems like that. You've got to convert people's hearts and change their attitude. And I don't care if you went in with a landslide. Hello. You can walk up to the devil and say, I'm a politician. I'm going to change this. And he's going to laugh at you. You don't have political authority that's going to work in the kingdom of darkness. You understand my thesis here? Can you, can you grasp what I'm saying? They're kind of like the old farmer that was working around his barn one day. He looked up and saw a bright, shiny new truck pulling up the road toward the barn. And a guy got out, official-looking kind of a fella, had government tags on registration on the truck. And he walked over to the other for, old former, pulled out a card and handed it to him and said, I'm from the water authority here in the state of Texas. And I've come to look at allocation of water resources and how they're used on your form. And the old former said, well, you can look at anything you want. It's fine with me. Just don't go in that field over there. And, of course, the government official's ears perked up. And he said, I, I told you that card represents who I am sponsored by. This card backs me up. I have authority. I can go in any field you've got. You can't stop me. And the old former said, but, but. And the man said, no buts about it. I done told you that card says I can go anywhere I want to go. I work for the water authority and you can't stop me. And the former tried one more time, but sir. And he said, I said, no buts. Why don't you just do us both a favor and stop talking and let me get about my business. And the old former didn't say another word, just leaned on a fence post and got ready to to see the, 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 the drama unfold. And the guy walked over into the field, and a few minutes later, he come running at the top of his voice screaming, Help! Help! And right behind him was the former's mean, cantankerous old bull that the former had been trying to warn him was in that field. And it was gaining on that guy every step. And the man in desperation was looking at the former and said, Help! Help! And the former leaning on the fence post said, show him your card. Why don't you show him your card? Amen. The reason governments cannot change things is because the enemy is not impressed with political authority. Jesus said before you can come into a strong man's house, and spoil is good, you've got to first bind the strong man. Hear what I'm talking about, amen. And that's why the, the governments of the world are powerless in some of the circumstances that they are engaged in trying to resolve. They need to call upon the church rather than denigrating the church and marginalizing it and putting it in a corner somewhere, trying to pretend it's the, the, the retarded child that they don't want to even acknowledge exists. We're the only ones that can help this situation. And, and we as the people of God need to wake up and realize our role in society. And besides that, we've got a secret weapon that works for us that transforms society they don't even have access to. Neither Democrats, Republicans, Independents, nor the Tea Party have this secret weapon at work in their arsenal the way the church has it available to them. And that brings me to the next leadership principle that Nehemiah employed. 
to elevate his people, Nehemiah taught the people, are you ready, to tithe and give as a part of their worship and taught them how to tap into God's unlimited resources. Watch it. Remember who these people were. I set it up for you a moment ago. Poor, downtrodden, families decimated. All of them had lost loved ones. All of the intelligentsia had been taken away to Babylon that were not executed. They were left, literally, the poorest of the poor, to eke out a survival living, and what they managed to raise was heavily taxed with tribute tax that had to be paid to the king of Babylon back in Babylonia. Amen. Nehemiah goes to them, and in Nehemiah 10, 35, after he builds the wall, watch it now, he says this, and we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord. First fruits means tithe. He went and had them bring their first fruit to the house of God. And right away, it almost jerks something inside of you. You can feel the jangling discord, the lack of symmetry with what we have been taught that exists between what happened and what we think ought to be done. We look and say, Nehemiah, shouldn't you have had compassion on these people? They're poor. And Nehemiah stares back across the pages of the Bible and time to look at us and respond by saying, you don't understand. I did have compassion. I put to work a principle in their lives that was the only thing that could help them get out of the hole they were buried in. They couldn't do it by themselves. They lacked the education. They lacked the resources. They lacked the connection. They were in a hole so deep they never would have recovered and gotten out of it. I gave them access to supernatural resources. That's what happens when you tithe. You tap into God's resources, which are limitless. Somebody in the building needs to hear what I'm saying. Amen. Therefore, it can be accurately stated that tithing is literally a major component in God's arsenal with which to fight spiritual warfare. By teaching the people to tithe, they broke out into another level. Nehemiah 10 and 39, for the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain of the new wine and the oil to the storehouses where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. You neglect God's house, you don't get supernatural assistance. And that means you're locked into whatever you can do for yourself. Baby, you're on your own. You're going to hit a ceiling somewhere. And in today's market world, marketplace economy, that's faster done than you realize. You don't want to bottom out. But what Nehemiah is saying is, as a leader, I felt compelled to help elevate their lives. And I knew something. I knew what they didn't know, that if they'll give to God, God's grace will go to work in their life. And they will begin to rise up and not even know why, because that's what happens. Well, some people would question that. And again, on the surface, they would actually feel that they were being sympathetic to the Jewish people of Nehemiah's hour. 
And they'd look at a Nehemiah today and they'd say, you're just, you're wrong, you man. You're, these are poor people. How can you take their money like that? Never realize it was God's plan that they were able through giving to tap into a bigger dimension of resources than they would ever have access to in this natural world on their own. The inevitable effect of aligning oneself with the teachings of God's word and, and, and when you tithe is to experience elevation. I want you to say this, the inevitable effect. Say it out loud. The inevitable effect. Say it like you mean it. The inevitable effect. When I tithe, I get elevated. Say it. When I tithe, I get elevated. Did you know that there's even a recognized sociological phenomenon that occurs when people convert to Christianity? It is called redemptive lift. You can actually look it up. Redemptive lift, the definition is it's a phenomenon that occurs when a person or group becomes Christian and thereby is lifted out of his or its former environment and separated from it in social and economic respects. That's what redemptive lift is. You get saved, you get lifted out of what you were in, and you are elevated sociologically and economically above those who did not convert with you. Why? Because God walked by and said, live. Amen, amen. That, wait, it's gonna get good. A Christianity Today article entitled The Surprising Discovery About Those Colonialist Proselytizing Missionaries dated January 8, 2014, details the startling findings of sociologist Robert Woodbury. So far as I know, Woodbury's not even a believer. Woodbury's work was published in 2012 in the American Political Science Review. Have you read it? I have. And it's entitled, The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. Mm -hmm. This is not a theological publication. It's not a church publication. It is exactly what it says, the American Political Science Review. This work by Robert Woodbury defends the thesis that the gospel elevates those who embrace it. It states, quote, and it's up there on the screen, the work of missionaries turns out to be the single largest factor in ensuring the health of nations. This was a discovery that he says landed on him like an atomic bomb. He wasn't even expecting it. Quote, areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental organizations. You say, what's a non-governmental organization? It could be anything, but you got the right to belong to whatever you want to without a government censor telling you you can't, is what he's saying. Father, there is one important nuance to all this. The positive effect of missionaries on democracy, listen closely, applies only to conversionary Protestants. Protestant clergy financed by the state as well as Catholic missionaries prior to the 1960s had no comparable effect in areas where they worked. Whoa. 
that's heavy. It means all those missionaries that have gone around the world just to set up social reform programs that years later their programs didn't really help anybody. But those who went saying you need to repent, leave your idols, give your heart to God and started preaching conversion and the Bible, guess what? It elevated those nations and those peoples and those tribes, at not only sociologically or theologically, but economically as well. Mm -hmm. Conversionary Protestant missionaries are those who believe that to be saved from sin and judgment, one must convert from false religions to faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm, I'm preaching now. Yeah, I am. Mm -hmm. I find this interesting because in today's world, it's become popular to bash Christian missionaries and accuse them of having destroyed the culture of the native societies they ministered to. Uh -huh. You've seen it in TV programs. I sit beside people on airplanes who want to pontificate and talk about all the harm Christian missionaries did. And what it seems to me is it never occurs to those who criticize missionaries that just maybe people in third world countries might want their children to survive childhood, which often isn't the case in primitive societies where the infant mortality rate is so very high. Maybe they don't want to have to wash their clothes by hand in the same polluted stream that sewage empties into and that animals wallow in and then have to go to the same stream to draw their drinking water. Maybe they wanted to be elevated if you don't mind. And, and hello somebody, I'm preaching. God, I'm preaching right now. We have allowed the world to intimidate the church and even make us feel guilty. When if it wasn't for us, the world would still be barbaric and still in sin and still lost. And Oh, but God walked by and said live. And God looked at the world polluted and contaminated and, and said live. The question then becomes why? Did elevation occur in these countries where the gospel was preached? Why? The answer is actually very simple. Two factors are at work. One is the power of the blood of Jesus to fix what sin has broken. Hmm. Make no mistake about it. Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. <laughs> Hallelujah to the Lamb. And like we used to sing years ago, there is power, power, wonder-working power and the precious blood of the Lamb, would you be free huh? from your burden and sin? There's power in the blood. Hallelujah. Make no mistake about it. The blood is to the devil what kryptonite is to, to Superman. He just, he can't stand the blood. And when missionaries brought the blood to sin-cursed societies, it couldn't help but break the bondage of sin where people received the gospel message. The second thing that they did that caused elevation is missionaries began to teach the whole counsel of God. 
contradicting and, and going against the current wisdom that exists today, missionaries in impoverished, poor societies taught their people that you need to tithe so that God can elevate you. <laughs> I know that because for the last 45 years, I've been involved in missions work, and I've heard them, and I've also preached in their pulpits. And yes, even though people were so poor, they lived in houses made of mud with thatched roofs and a dirt floor, they heard the missionaries say that you need to give God his tithe. Why would you do something like that in a primitive society? I'll tell you why. Malachi 3, verse 10 through 12. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that for your sakes that there will not be room enough to receive it. Oh, Hello, somebody. Hear what I'm saying. And do you know what they did? They started preaching tithing. And do you know what God did? Whether you believe his word or not, he still believes his word. And, and they opened, God opened heaven and they began to get blessed. And you may not believe the Bible, but God still believes the Bible. That's right. We may think we're so wise that we don't need to believe the word of God anymore, but God still believes his word and he honored them when they, they obeyed his word. First, he opened the windows of heaven. But just opening the windows of heaven don't do you much good when you got all kind of other stuff and the devourer is loosed in your life. God said, I will also rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Nor shall your vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. God did two things. When missionaries came preaching the blood of Jesus and insisted people convert, and they did. And then they began to preach elevation through tithing. God opened the windows of heaven and cursed the devourer. Listen, America, we're on the verge of a crisis in this nation. Do we want to make it to the next level? Do we want to continue to have favor with God? I see a few of you do, but I don't know about the rest of you. Oh, maybe you're going to pray my father, which art in Washington, D.C. How's that been working out for you? Mm -hmm. I tell you what, it reminds me for all the world, some of these guys that are that are sports enthusiasts. Now, there are certain sports that I love. I love the UFC, for example, mixed martial arts. I like all that kind of stuff. But I won't tell you right now, I'm very much cognizant of the fact not a single one of those guys know who I am. And I hear guys say, oh, LeBron James, he's my man. LeBron James don't even know who you are either. Hello, somebody. And the same thing is true with whoever sits in the Oval Office. I doubt he knows any of us here. And in the next administration won't. Look, I'd rather put my faith in a God who's ever faithful, who never fails, who never changes. Am I teaching you to separate yourself from a political system? No, to the contrary. I'm telling you to be more engaged in it than you've ever been. But don't believe your authority is coming from their, your vote. It's not. It's coming from the power of God that is inside of you that can transform societies. 
Amen. Again, somebody could question, Nehemiah, how can you go in a place like that so poverty-stricken and trodden underfoot as these people are and tell them to give? Why should people sacrifice? Besides, didn't the king underwrite the budget to rebuild the wall? Very valid point. Because the king had given Nehemiah a letter saying, you don't need to worry about raising any money. I'm going to pay for the whole thing. But Nehemiah still went and asked the people to tithe and give. You know why? Because, number one, he didn't want the people to walk into something they didn't have ownership in. Oh. Oh, yeah. It's not good enough to go to a church that has vision. You need to have vision, too. It's not good enough to just worship here on Sunday morning. You need to be involved in what God is trying to speak through his corporate body to the earth. Amen. And because of this, Nehemiah gave himself. He first of all realized that people needed ownership in the vision. And secondly, he realized we're going to go off and leave the rest of those behind. We're going to be blessed if all we do is I'm, if I'm the only one that ties and these people never get involved in giving, then yeah, we'll build a wall. We'll even build a temple. But they won't have, know what to do with it whenever they get their hands on it. And how many of you lived long enough to know that if something's just given to you, you don't appreciate it either? So Nehemiah 5, 17 and 18, he set the example by giving generously himself. He says, at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep, also fowl were prepared for me, and once every 10 days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the, king, the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. Nehemiah never asked one thing from the government. He said, I'm going to do it myself. And he set about and set the example. You can't be a godly leader and you can't elevate people unless you're willing to demonstrate through your own life your sacrifice and your faith in the word of almighty God. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Someone may raise the objection, yeah, but Nehemiah was under the law and that tithing stuff, isn't that all under the law? I'll never forget my son-in-law, Jeff, and I'll just make mention of him for a moment. As you know, Jeff and his partner, business partner, Mike, they've been extraordinarily blessed in their business. And so you'll see Rolls Royces drive up here in Ferraris and Lamborghinis and all of that. And, and some of you just look at that, and, and, and first of all, I want you to know that if you've worked for it, you've built a business, you drive it here. Challenge somebody. Show somebody else what they could do if they'll believe in God. And, um, uh, my son-in-law gave me a statement the other day. I'm always giving him statements. He gave me one the other day. He said, you'll, speaking of success, you'll get it when you go get it. Amen. Now, they've been blessed, and a number of people that I've mentored, like sons here, have been greatly blessed, greatly blessed financially. I need to say this. I was leaving the other day, and I had to go to the airport, and Jeff was going to, we need to talk through some things, and, and so we were on the way to the airport, and he was sitting in his, he pulled his Bentley up right in front of the church. Okay, and I got in it. Wasn't mine. It was his. You got that part. The ownership is clear. Okay, here I am preaching against pastors of L.A. 
and I'm sitting in the front seat, and even more, I've got a driver. I'm bad. Yeah. And folk were coming out and looking, bending down and looking. I opened the door and I said, it's not mine, it's his. <laughs> I made that very, very clear. Amen. And I'm very happy for those that have been blessed. But Jeff and I had gone to Chicago for business some years ago. And while we were there, we met a guy that I've known through the years. His name is Gary. He's Jewish. He's very wealthy. Gary and his family are, they're like the upper crust in Chicago. Gary, we, we, when we met that day, Gary was asking me about the ministry because he knows that I travel and that I'm a pastor. He knows that I'm overseas every week and that blows his mind. And one thing led to another and we began to talk about the work CT has done through the years in Africa, Latin and South America, India and other parts of the world. And on occasion, Gary will email me and sometimes it takes me a few days to get back to him. I always tell people, don't leave me a voice message, or, or rather, don't send me a text. Either leave me a voice message or email me. Texts don't even come through in Africa in many of the places I'm in. And even then, sometimes it takes a day or two or three to be able to get an email. The, the, the network can be so bad in some areas. So Gary and I were talking about this, and he said, I sent you emails. And I said, yeah, but Gary, you know the situation. And Gary is amazed. He said, you do this every week. And I said, yeah. And he said, man, how do you survive it? And I'm telling him about where you, when, when you're called for something, whenever you're, you're walking in your assignment, there's a grace of God that goes with your assignment. And, and Gary said, man, it would kill me. He said, I don't see how you do it. He said, man, how do you survive? And I, I told, I'd always laugh and tell him the same thing I tell everybody. I say, well, who says I'm surviving it? I'm 27, and look at me, you know. And <laughs> Gary laughed, and we, we talked through it. And then he looked at me, and he made a statement that Jeff told me changed his life. Now, Jeff's always been a tither, so I wouldn't want you to think that he needed this to tithe. But Gary looked at me and made this statement. He said, Dr. Hurd, he said, I'm an agnostic. He said, I admire you. He said, I don't know if there is a God. I honestly don't know. Can't say there isn't, but don't know that there is. When I was growing up, all my relatives that I was raised by all carried numbers tattooed on their forearms from the concentration camps in Germany. Those of them that survived, we lost a lot of our family in World War II. He said, I would like to believe in God the way you do, but after what we went through, it's hard for me. And Gary, he almost teared up at that point. He said, I wish I could believe like you do. Then he made the statement that impacted my son-in-law, Jeff, and he said, even though I don't know if there is a God or not, one thing I do believe in, and that is in tithing. He said, that's a universal principle. Whether there's a God or not, that's a universal principle. And he went on to make the statement. He said, giving has lifted the Jewish people and made us who we are. And that's what lifted my family after World War II when we were absolutely almost destroyed. He said, I believe in tithing at least a tenth of my income. Now, to answer the question you asked, wasn't Nehemiah under the law? What you need to realize is tithing was never just a regulation of law. It is true that it's mentioned under the law, but it was it existed before the law began and referred to again and again after the law ended. You didn't know that, did you? Because you listen to somebody that doesn't want to tithe. 
And they think Goliath led the children of Israel through the Red Sea, and you're listening to them. They think Moses built the ark. You're listening to people that don't know which end is up. Oh, tithing is under the law. Oh, wait a minute. Jesus said in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom has been preached and everyone is pressing his way into it. Jesus said the law and the prophets ended at John. Yet after John, Jesus still preached tithing. Paul still preached tithing. And Hebrews still preached tithing. You didn't realize that was in your Bible also, did you? Uh Uh-huh. Tithing is a universal principle. It not only existed after the law, it existed before the law. Before God ever gave Moses the tablets on Mount Sinai, way back in the garden, God had two trees set aside, and he said, that's my tithe. That belongs to me. Don't you touch it. And if you really want to know what caused man to fall and experience the opposite of elevation, here it is. It was a problem trusting God and giving to God what belonged to him. Oh, preach it, Pastor Heard. I am. I'm going to rip it up today. I'm going to, oh, Lord, somebody go get a fire engine. I'm preaching like a house of fire right now. Amen. The original sin was actually a failure to give God what belonged to him. I'm concluding now. Nehemiah understood that as poor as these people are, I've got to elevate them. And do you know that through the years, I've had people come to me and tell me their situation and their plight. I've got this and I've got that and I've got this. And my compassion as a pastor tears my heart out. And I want to say, don't you worry about giving. But you know why I can't? Because I can't be the one to hold them back and on judgment day them look at me and say you're the reason I went through all of this when if you had just preached to me the word like it should have been preached I could have been out of that hole I was in I could have been elevated I could have been blessed and you held me back oh but I was feeling sorry for you I didn't need your sympathy I needed help I needed supernatural help and I close with a story told to me by a friend of mine, Pastor Joe Parker. Joe's a great pastor. Pastored in Seattle, Washington, built a great church. And while he was pastoring there, he had occasion to visit Washington, D.C. on business. Joe's very gifted. He now pastors outside Dallas, great man of God. He went into a restaurant one evening in Washington, D.C., and he looked and he saw Bishop John Mears the founding pastor of Evangel Temple. Now, Bishop Mears was an extraordinary man. Last few years, he's gone home to be with the Lord. Evangel Temple is an extraordinary church. It is a church filled with diplomats, ambassadors, people from the the House, from the Senate, lawmakers. It It has prestigious people that are in its membership. Members of the UN, ambassadors from other nations, I'm talking about it is well known. Bishop Mears was sitting there and Pastor Joe Parker, my friend, walked over and said, Bishop Mears, forgive me for interrupting you. I just wanted to say that I appreciate so much what you mean to the body of Christ and the inspiration you have been. Bishop Mears was by himself. And he said, who are you? 
And Joe said, I'm Pastor Joe Parker. I pastor a church outside Seattle. And Bishop Mears said, are you alone? And Joe said, yeah. And he said, son, would you join me for supper this evening? He said, I'm by myself, and I'd enjoy the company. Tell me something about yourself. And Joe said, I don't want to interfere with your meal. And he said, no. He said, it would be an honor if you'd come join me. And Joe sat down, and he said, when he sat down, Bishop Mears straightened his shoulders back and looked at him and asked him a question. Now, I need to tell you what that question was. He said, son, do you teach your people to tithe? And Joe said, that was a very strange question to ask me. I mean, I just met the man. And he said, yes, sir. And he said, Bishop Mears leaned across the table, his eyes blazing with intensity. And he asked him the second time, son, do you really teach your people to tithe? And Joe said, yes, sir. He said, Bishop Mears didn't let it go. He put his hands on the table and said, son, I'm asking you, do you really teach your people to tithe? And Joe said at that point, he felt like Simon Peter in the book of St. John when Jesus said, lovest thou me more than thee? Asked him that question three times. And Joe looked back at Bishop Mears and said, I'm trying to. And Bishop Mears said, everybody knows about Evangel Temple. They know about who we are and the political influence and the wealth of the church that I pastor now. But he said, what nobody tells you is where we came from. He said, I started this church in one of the poorest suburbs of Washington, D.C., a ghetto. The congregation, Bishop Mears is white. The congregation is 94% black. And he said, I taught those people to tithe when they ran stories in the newspapers criticizing me. And he said, I taught them if you will obey God, God will elevate you. And now we're one of the most recognized churches in the world. And he said, I did it by teaching one thing. You can tithe out of the hole you're in. God have mercy. God said, I will open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you cannot receive. Is there anybody that wants to be elevated? Is there anybody that doesn't want to just be saved? Is there anybody that wants to live, that wants their finances to live, their ministry to live?